Hello, my angels, and welcome to Hortopia, the podcast. This is going to be a space where we reimagine a new world by challenging the capitalistic, patriarchal values that dominate our society. Together, we will rethink and reinvent our understanding of anything and everything, especially the institutions and ideologies that attempt to keep us in the margins. My name is Tilly, and I will be guiding you all on this journey from my own anti-capitalist, intersectional feminist, sex-positive, poor perspective. Fuck you. Pay me. Let's get into it. Hello, my wonderful angels. Welcome back to Hortopia, the podcast. My name is Tilly. I am your host. As always, I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the country on which Hortopia is recorded on today, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I recognize their continuing connection to land, waters, and culture, and I pay my respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. Apologies for the delay between the second and the third episodes. I know it's been about two months since I released the second one. There's been a lot on my plate. We finally are in the clear. I'm ready and have the capacity to record, which is very exciting. It's good to be chatting again. I actually just recorded this entire episode and it went for a little longer than I was expecting, but I realized at the end of the recording that my microphone no longer works. Um, So I'm now recording it directly into my computer. So I hope that the sound quality is okay. And I really hope I don't have to record this for a third time. We will see how we go. In regards to the delay, I had a lot on my plate when 2021 started, especially compared to having almost nothing on my plate in 2020. But with this particular episode, I think one of the big things that has sort of slowed down the process is the topic. So today's topic, I'm going to be looking at sex positivity And I think when it comes to sex and sexuality, I have a lot to say. And so I've really kind of struggled to organize my thoughts cohesively enough to sit down and actually write out this episode. Because when I'm talking about theoretical things and, you know, concepts and things I learned through academia, I do want to fact check and I want to make sure that I'm giving you all the right information. So there was a bit of research that went into this. And it was, you know, a bit of a battle to try and work out which ones were the crucial topics specifically for this episode. So please know that I did try and squeeze as much into this episode as I could, but I also don't want to overload you with information. So anything not covered in today's episode can and will be used in future episodes. Don't you worry. Just on that, if there are any particular topics that you would like me to cover or if there's anything that I've already discussed in an episode that you'd like more info or discourse on, please get in contact with me. The main social media platform that I use is Instagram, which is at Tilly, T-I-L-L-Y dot Hortopia, or you can contact me through my website, which is Hortopia.com. I... Absolutely love hearing all of your feedback. So please keep it coming. I'm always open for constructive criticism, even if it's something that you didn't love. Please let me know. But with all of that out of the way, let's get on with episode three. Episode three is going to be the final episode in my mini breakdown series. So in episode one, we broke down what is capitalism. 
The second episode was a breakdown of what is intersectional feminism. And this third episode is going to look at sex positivity. Now, both of those first two episodes were explanation episodes of the what. With this episode, I am going to obviously explain the what. But the focus of this episode is going to be more on the why. And I'm going to be asking, or more so answering, why we need sex positivity. So just on that, let's get into it. baffles me about sex is how universal it is because there is literally nothing else in this world that unites all of us and not just humans but animals as well. Sex is that one universality that exists on this planet because if you think about it across the globe we speak different languages which means we attach different meaning to different things through language. We come from different cultures. So again, how those meanings are understood, you know, is different depending on where you are and when you were there. The way that we relate to the environment is different. The way that we relate to labor and work is different. But the one thing that we have in common is if people are being born, then sex is happening. And I really can't seem to wrap my head around why such a universal natural experience can have such negative connotations associated to it. I don't understand how consensual sex acts such as sex work have more stigma attached to them than a full-blown misogynist or rapist. I don't understand how abortion can be up for debate when the majority of sexual assaults go unreported because it's too hard to prove and the legal system will convince you it's not worth pursuing, which is what happened in my own personal experience. Now, all of these things cannot be separated from capitalism and patriarchy. And the reason why I focused my first two episodes on those topics is because I'm going to refer back to those concepts probably in every episode going forward. And the reason that is, is because those ideologies permeate across all aspects of our society. And so in my opinion, it is impossible to understand anything in this world as separate from those two things. So the taboo and the stigma and the shame that is all attached to sex doesn't make any sense. And I think that the way that we understand sex and sexuality, we need to sort of understand the concept of normalization. Now, the concept of normalization refers to social processes through which ideas and actions come to be seen as normal and then they become taken for granted or we understand them as natural in our everyday life. Being that we are social creatures, we as humans, we decide And we give meaning to different things. And those meanings are generally understood first on a collective level, and then we interpret those on an individual level. And in our society, there are plenty of things that we've normalized that are not natural or inherent. Things like monogamy and marriage are normalized as specific life trajectories. 
Things like working 40 plus hours a week is normalized behavior that we have been convinced symbolizes a good work ethic. Through male domination, we've normalized violence. And most people accept violence as an immutable part of life, which extends into the sexual and domestic violence spheres and has led us into a modern rape culture. And the prevalence of violence and rape are more normalized in our society than healthy discussions surrounding sex, consent, and pleasure. And as I mentioned before, these understandings of the world cannot be separated from either patriarchy or capitalism. And when we think of the normalization process, it can be really easy to assume that it takes years or even generations for things to become normal. But COVID has really showed us that that's really just not true. Just over a year ago, life as we knew it for everyone on the globe completely changed. And in just over 12 months, there are things that we have normalized that we didn't even think of a year ago. Walking into a shop and having your temperature checked, normal. Using face masks on public transport and being out, normal. The way that we work, the way that we live has changed and we adapted to that through normalization pretty fucking quickly. So we can see that we as a society, we can change what is normal and what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. And one of the things that we've really, really normalized that is one of the main reasons why I think we need sex positivity is the normalization of rape culture. And it's both capitalism and patriarchy that have led us into this rape culture. A rape culture is a culture that shames and stigmatizes sexually positive women and non-cis male bodies while simultaneously ignoring and scapegoating actual victims of abuse. And what do we hear constantly in defense of rape culture? Oh, it's not all men. False accusations ruin lives. She was asking for it. Why didn't she do more? All of those bullshit responses to rape culture is just blatant ignorance of the lived experience of every second person on this planet. It's about entitlement and it's about men feeling entitled to women not just our bodies, but also our emotional labor and pretty much everything that we have to give. I did briefly mention violence against women, but I think I just want to clarify that rape culture cannot be disconnected from the institutional violence against women. And what I mean by the institutionalized violence against women is that violence against women has been occurring since patriarchy first existed and rape was often used as a weapon of war. And in some places around the world, it still is. And I'm going to get into it quite soon. And I'm going to talk about how women are understood to be inherently submissive. But part of that submission links back to the years and years and centuries, really, of violence against women to put women in their place and to tell them what their role in society is going to be. So we are going to get into that. To understand rape culture, I'm going to give you the description that Clementine Ford, who is a feminist journalist, she describes rape culture as a state of existence in which the impact and reality of sexual violence is minimized, while the perpetrators of it are supported by a complex system built on flawed human beliefs, mythologies about gender, and good old-fashioned misogyny. 
In other words, we have normalized the understanding of the sexual dynamics between the genders as unequal. And although men make up the majority of abusers and supporters of this rigged system, sexual assault is still considered a women's issue. Now, if you're still skeptical about how rape culture actually operates, I'm going to give you some examples from where I live in Australia. So rape culture in Australia is when a woman speaks out about sexual assaults and or harassment, and the focus turns to what she was wearing, where she was, and why she didn't do more to protect herself. Rape culture in Australia is when almost one in seven people between the ages of 16 to 24 believe a man would be justified in raping a woman if she initiated sex but changed her mind. While almost a quarter of young men think women find it flattering to be persistently pursued, even if they're not interested. Rape culture in Australia is the understanding that sexual assault and violence against women is a women's issue, according to adolescent boys. Rape culture in Australia is when a woman gets raped in our parliament house and our prime minister responds by saying that he needed his wife to remind him that he has two daughters to fully understand how terrible of an act this actually was. And rape culture in Australia is when only 15% of rapes are reported with a tiny fraction of those leading to convictions. Of those convictions, the average non-parole period is two years and eight months compared to three years for money laundering of more than $100,000, which is basically an indication that the law carries heavier penalties for disrespecting the economy than violating another person's body. As I said before, rape culture is just one of the reasons why we need sex positivity. Some of the other reasons are the constant violence that sex workers face around the world, especially trans and non-white workers, purely because we get paid for a sexual service. We need sex positivity because there are still places around the world that focus sex education on reproduction and abstinence and ignore ideas around consent and pleasure. We need sex positivity because the concept of virginity still exists. We need sex positivity because of the ongoing slut shaming and victim blaming, not just of survivors, but just how women are perceived in society. All of this and more is why I would like to push for a more sex positive world. But what exactly is sex positivity? Let's start with the definition. The complex version of what is sex positivity, as described by sex positivity leader Alana Gabosch, is that the sex positive movement is a social and philosophical movement that seeks to change cultural attitudes and norms around sexuality. It promotes the recognition of sexuality in all the countless forms of expressions as a natural and healthy part of the human experience and emphasizing the importance of personal autonomy, safer sex practices, and consensual sex free from violence or coercion. It covers every aspect of sexual identity, including gender expression, orientation, relationship to the body, relationship style, as well as reproductive rights. Simply put, sex positivity is an understanding that consensual sexual activities between consenting adults should be free of shame and stigma. And it's very clear to me, and I'm sure to everyone who, you know, has made a choice to listen to this podcast, I'm sure that we are the ones who fully understand that we are not even close to achieving our sex positive goal as the world currently stands. 
Now, just like the first two episodes, I do want to take a bit of a historical approach to understanding how we got to where we're at today in 2021 and our modern understandings of sex and sexuality. And I was going to do a history of sexuality, but I'm not going to do that. What I'm going to look at instead is the history of sexual authority. Now, what I mean by sexual authority is in different contexts throughout history, certain people or groups of people were considered authorized to speak on particular topics. And those authorized people discounted anyone outside of that authority as illegitimate. Now, the reason I'm focusing on this authority aspect rather than the history of general sexuality is because we know that women have not been considered the authority on their own experiences, let alone been allowed to share their history for thousands of years. And the way in which we understand history is through a patriarchal lens. And much of our history has been adjusted or even fully rewritten to maintain the status quo, not just of power, but also of authority within that patriarchal paradigm. So we're going to rewind back a few hundred years to when religion was the dominant ideology. And through that ideology, who were the people authorized to speak about sex? It was religious leaders. And the way that sex was understood through religion, a lot of the remnants of that are still felt today. And religion understood sex as a tool for procreation and nothing more. And that's the part of the religious ideology that still haunts many parts of the world today. To be clear though, when I talk about religion and the understanding that sex is for procreation that was sex for women because sex was understood to be different for men and we know that there are lots of religious texts that talk about whores so we know that sexual pleasure was understood to be a male thing but pleasure connected to sex there was zero connection through religion for women now with religion when I talk about religion I am talking about the sort of main judo christeo religions but I'm yet to find a religion that doesn't employ some patriarchal understandings as part of their religious ideology. If anyone does know of any religions that are still being practiced today that do not conform to patriarchy, please let me know because I would love to study that. But coming back to the main religions, suppressing female sexuality was an important religious patriarchal tool that helped women and men understand their roles in society. For women, their roles were to be passive, secondary citizens to the men. The way in which women came to embody themselves was dependent on the means given to them by patriarchy and by those religious leaders and it's taken different forms over time. I've mentioned her before but the French feminist de Beauvoir also argued that the biological condition of women was not the handicap itself and rather it was the negative meaning that is imposed onto women from the oppressive and hostile society externally. Now as I mentioned all religions around the world employ different aspects of patriarchy into their ideologies and religion understood gender roles as strict and specific and the main role of women as understood through religion was that her role in life was to be a mother and a wife and to serve her husband or her father if she was unwed. Women were so often used as scapegoats and you can see it in many religious texts that linked women to sin and the need to diminish and control women's sexuality is central to this process. 
Religion afforded women little to no agency, and those who transgressed their gender boundaries were severely punished. I spoke about the witch hunts in my previous episodes, and those witch hunts were a systematic way of enforcing those gender roles and publicly reminding women to understand their place or be killed. Challenging religion, especially as a woman, was near impossible, as the body of knowledge that surrounded our existence was limited to that religious paradigm. And when the choices were between motherhood and death, most people conformed to the expectations with little to no question. Understanding sex through the ideology of religion results in heterosexual monogamy defaulting to the status of normal. And people who challenged the normalcy of heterosexuality were punished. And for women especially, there was a clear binary between good and bad women. Or what Freud later coined as the Madonna whore complex. I think the the Madonna whore complex is super interesting. I have read a lot of academic articles about this and I think that I would like to devote a whole episode about talking about that. So I'm not going to get into it too much here, but I will come back to it. Coming back to women through this religious ideology, we were condemned to the passive submissive role for hundreds of years through that religious ideology. And the understanding of this natural submission continues to shape our understanding of sex in the modern context. The absence of discourse on pleasure and freedom in women's sexuality from this religious discourse in all major world religions continues to affirm and support the values and power of both capitalism and patriarchy. Now, religion dominated society up until about the 17th and 18th centuries. And in the 17th century, a really interesting thing in society happened. And we went through this enlightenment period. And this enlightenment period signaled the beginning of a new modern world. And it was stepping away from the dominance of the religious ideology. So the enlightenment period was when a lot of philosophers and thinkers, they started to sort of challenge the authority that was afforded to religion. And they said, maybe there's other ways of understanding the world. Maybe there's other ways of knowing the world. Maybe there's other ways of interpreting it. And so these philosophers started to, it wasn't necessarily that they discredited religion, but they started to look at the world from a different perspective. And instead of just accepting the world as it was because God said so, they challenged those things and they brought in concepts such as reason and rationality. So the Enlightenment period really privileged reason and rationality as the basis for organizing knowledge rather than a preordained understanding through the idea of an almighty God. The Enlightenment period saw the rise of scientific understanding and science took over religion as the dominating way of understanding the world. Now, other ideas that came out of the Enlightenment period was the push towards individualism, the idea that humans were progressing and advancing towards modernity the separation of church and state, and the search for universal truths and laws as separate from religion all held weight during this Enlightenment period. And as I said, this Enlightenment period, which broke away from religion, allowed science and medicine to take over that sexual authority from those religious leaders. So the new secular ideas continued
continued to perpetuate gendered understandings of the world. You would think that they would have challenged them, but giving authority to science, the scientific classification, because women had been submissive for so long because they were ultimately forced to, science saw that women were inferior because they were passive and because they were submissive. And that idea of humans progressing into modernity, white cis men in Western Europe, they saw themselves at the forefront of human civilization and their Eurocentric paradigm. They understood that these new understandings of the world were reserved for men only. So things like rationality, they were considered to be intrinsically male traits, which meant that the opposing irrationality was considered intrinsically female. And all of these claims were backed up by science, the science of the time, and the biological perception of inferiority due to hundreds of years of us acting as those submissive people in society, as well as us, you know, being childbearers, just continue to keep women subordinated by men. And I have also mentioned this before, but we need to just recognize that science is not automatically objective. Too often science is considered a form of knowledge that's immune to different political and historical conditions, but that's really just not the case. One of my favorite academics is this French guy called Michel Foucault. He was a philosopher, a historian of ideas, writer, political activist, literary critic, and he was a gay man. And if you are looking for an actual history of sexuality, he's already done that for us. He has written three volumes, The History of Sexuality, which is worth reading, but I think he took on some misogynistic uh, aspects of thinking without even intending to, just because patriarchy was just so ingrained in everybody for so long that even now people, you know, struggle to challenge it. But Foucault recognized the blind acceptance of science and challenged the privilege that the scientific field was afforded. And one of his key concerns of scientific dominance was the understanding that the historical subordination of women fed into the scientific understanding that we were naturally submissive. So it basically meant that the thinkers of the time, they actually weren't able to imagine the possibility of women outside of that submissive role. And it was just accepted that women were just inferior and there was nobody who challenged that notion for a really long time actually no I would probably guess that there were probably plenty of people who did challenge it but they were dismissed and they were erased from history so we don't have those stories So coming back to the idea of sexual authority, as I discussed, the Enlightenment period drew people away from the understanding that the religious worldview was the only way to see the world and science took over. Around the time of the Enlightenment period, which is that 17th century, there was a new illness plaguing women and this was known as hysteria. Now, I don't know if anyone has heard of the history of hysteria, but I will tell you some of the symptoms. Symptoms included... A swollen abdomen, suffocating angina, which is chest pain, dyspnea, shortness of breath, dysphagia, difficulty swallowing, cold extremities, warm extremities, tears and laughter, oscitation, which is yawning, pandiculation, which is stretching and yawning, delirium, a close and driving pulse, an abundant and clear urine. They were just some of the symptoms. 
So basically, anytime a woman did anything that made a man uncomfortable, she was diagnosed with hysteria. And this medical understanding of women being predisposed to this mental illness gave men an excuse to label a woman as sick and in need of treatment. And what was the treatment for hysteria? It was a hysterical paroxysm. Or in other words, an orgasm. That's right. The way to treat female hysteria was initially through a pelvic massage and eventually the vibrator was invented. And interestingly, the vibrator was the fifth household item to become mechanized. The vibrator became a machine almost a hundred years before the vacuum cleaner was invented. And that first mechanized vibrator was known as the manipulator. It was a large awkward table with a hole in it where basically they put a vibrating sphere top in the hole and a woman was made to sit on it until she achieved a hysterical paroxysm. Doctors at the time were strongly advised against letting women sit atop of the sphere for longer than a few minutes as it could result in overindulgence. And you may think that hysteria was confined to the 17th century. It was in the DSM until 1950. So even women, you know, my grandparents, they could have been diagnosed with hysteria if they looked at a man wrong. After the Enlightenment period of the 1700s, where science began to dominate, we then get into the 1800s. And the 1800s was the Victorian era. And the Victorian era, they really became obsessed with sex. And they're the ones who sort of brought back that religious connection between morality and sexuality. And the idea of a pure good woman as compared to a dirty whore, Madonna whore, really took hold during this time period. And the gendered expectations were so vastly different. And women, obviously, were supposed to remain pure until marriage. And even once they were married, only having sexual relations with her husband, generally only to procreate. Whereas men, obviously, did not have those same limitations. You know, there were no purity expectations of men. Uh, When it came to the marriage, again, men were still seen as animalistic, you know, uncontrollable sexual urges. So things like marital rape, no such thing, because as we discussed, women belonged to their husbands. She became his property. He could do as he wished, as he liked, when he liked with his property. Now, I think I briefly mentioned the idea of a nuclear family, which is one husband married to one wife with two or three children. And I think I discussed this in the capitalism episode because the idea of a nuclear family is a capitalist invention and it forced people to conform to this way of living and stigma was created surrounding anyone who didn't. As I've already re-mentioned, you know, witches. That was a, a very specific tool of violence against women to force them to know their place. Now, during this time, I think quite clearly, sex was still seen as something that happened to women and not something that happened with women. And at this time, it was understood that because women, as we've already mentioned, had been submissive for so long, it was just understood that they naturally played that role. And no scientists, no doctors, not even philosophers challenged that until women were allowed to basically speak. And, you know, we we continued to adopt those roles because there was really no other way for us. We, We weren't given any other possibility of existing. 
Now we're going to fast forward a little bit to the 1950s and talk about sex in the 1950s. Now sex in the 1950s was a very conservative time period. It was very wholesome, very family focused. And I wanted to discuss the story of Johnson and Masters. Now, if you've seen the TV series Masters of Sex, you'd know all exactly what I'm about to tell you about. Dr. Masters was a, I believe he was a gynecologist, and he was really interested in studying the physiology of sex. And he wanted, you know, he wanted to research what was happening to the body when we we're engaging in sexual activities. And he really struggled to get funding. And this is the 1950s. And he, every time he asked for funding or financial support, he was always met with, absolutely not. You will not be, you know, given money to study this smut. That is not worth studying. There's nothing more that we need to know about it. No, 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 no. He actually started conducting his research in secret where he would actually hide in the closet of sex workers while they were working so that he could time how long it took the man to reach an orgasm and how long it took the woman to orgasm. And I don't want to give too much away, but he really knew nothing about women and women's sexuality. So even coming into the 1950s, we still didn't fully understand sex. But Masters and Johnson did change perceptions a little bit fighting that conservative 1950s with all the, at the time, extreme sort of views that they had on what they wanted to study, sort of led into that 1960s sexual revolution. And the the 1960s sexual revolution, we can't talk about it without talking about the rise of different forms of birth control. And birth control is really important turning point for all understanding women's sexuality because we were no longer burdened with the consequence of children if we were to to engage in unsafe sex. And this new age alternative lifestyle tried to really amplify the idea that women are sexual beings and we are capable of deciding how and with who we would like to have sex with. And the last episode sort of covered more of just the general feminist trajectory of the 20th century. So I'm not going to get too much into it now. But obviously we still are facing an uphill battle when it comes to women and non-cis male bodies being autonomous sexual beings in charge of our own sexuality. Now, the convergence of the remnants of the religious ideology combined with the medical scientific understanding of sexuality has led us into a heteronormative society. And heteronormativity is the understanding that heterosexuality is the default sexual status for all people. And if you were de- if you deviate away from that, you are abnormal. So if you think about coming out, anyone who doesn't conform to the heteronormative way of living has to come out from that heteronormative shadow and announce their otherness to the world. And if we didn't live in a heteronormative world, then we wouldn't need to announce, hey, I'm coming out as a bisexual. Hey, I, I'm i not a straight person. We shouldn't, we wouldn't need to do that if it wasn't a heteronormative society. And an easy way to imagine heteronormativity is to consider sexualities within a hierarchy. So both heteronormativity and rape culture I spoke of earlier feed off this hierarchy as dictated to society through our historical constructions of sexuality through religion, through science, through medicine, as well as capitalism and patriarchy. And the hierarchy of sex was first described by Gail Rubin in a powerful essay written in the 1980s called Thinking Sex. According to Rubin, modern Western societies appraise sex acts according to a hierarchical system of sexual value. Marital, reproductive heterosexuals are alone at the top of the erotic pyramid 
pyramid. Clamoring below are unmarried monogamous heterosexuals in couples, followed by most other heterosexuals. Stable, long-term, lesbian and gay male couples are verging on respectability, but bar dykes and promiscuous gay men are hovering just above the groups at the very bottom of the pyramid. The most despised sexual castes currently include transsexuals, transvestites, fetishists, sadomasochists, and sex workers such as prostitutes and porn models. Just before I go on, I do want to just remind people that Gail Rubin was writing in the 80s, so I know that the language may not be appropriate within our context, but once you have read Gail Rubin's writing, you know that she does not mean any of those terms derogatorily, so just keep that in mind. She then goes on to say that individuals whose behavior stands high in this hierarchy are rewarded with certified mental health, respectability, legality, social and physical mobility, institutional support, and material benefits. As sexual behaviors or occupations fall lower on the scale, the individuals who practice them are subjected to a presumption of mental illness, disreputability, criminality, restricted social and physical mobility, loss of institutional support, and economic sanctions. Extreme and punitive stigma maintains some sexual behaviors as low status and is an effective sanction against those who engage in them. The intensity of this stigma is rooted in Western religious traditions, but most of its contemporary content derives from medical and psychiatric opprobrium. What she means by this is that the lower down the hierarchy you fall, the more stigmatized you become. And the stigmatized identities of those at the bottom of the hierarchy don't necessarily operate through legal confines, and rather it's a cultural understanding of what is acceptable. So what she means is, as a sex worker, we are very low at the bottom. We have stigma. And it doesn't matter what the law says. It's that cultural understanding. So for me, where I am, I work in a decriminalized jurisdiction. By law, I'm not a deviant, but the stigma still persists because of the sexual service that I sell. The same thing goes for people who don't conform to the gender binary. The same goes for people who don't conform to the relationship of monogamy. And all of these people, the further down you go, the more of those identities that intersect, the more stigma and the more difficult your life is going to be. Now, this brings me to the final paradigm of sexual authority, which came about in the 18th century, but which still dominates today. And that's the paradigm of law and legality. So laws around sexuality first began to appear in the 16th century, where the Buggery Act entered British law, which restricted, quote, the detestable and abominable vice of buggery, committed with mankind or beast, end quote. So this Buggery Act criminalized anal sex between men, as well as bestiality, and considered both of these acts as equally immoral. Now, in Australia and many parts of the world, restrictions on same-sex female or lesbian relations basically don't exist. And the understanding that women just didn't do that sort of activity stems from the idea that we're not sexual beings. So the idea of lesbianism for a really long time was ignored, especially in a patriarchal society that viewed men as central to everything. Sex work, however, was and still is subject to legal restrictions and where sex work is fully criminalized, the criminalization of the job is often what makes working in those conditions the most dangerous. And my main argument as to why sex work is criminalized has nothing to do with protection and has everything to do with the male entitlement to women. Men don't think in a patriarchy that they should pay for a sexual service. 
they still understand that sex is something that they are entitled to and shouldn't have to pay for. Now I'm going to go back in time again. Sorry that this episode's a bit all over the place, uh, but we'll go back to the 60s and the queer liberation movement that did happen during that sexual revolution of the 60s was initially led by non-white trans sex workers and they were advocating for bodily autonomy and freedom from criminalization and the idea of intersectionality was originally a key part of this cultural revolution but it ended up being whitewashed and dominated by cisgendered queers specifically white gay men and for those so-called leaders it was easier to advance their own cause by leaving certain identity behind such as people of color trans and gender non-conforming people as well as the whores and what the queer movement ultimately did was create a parallel existence alongside the default of heteronormativity and what I mean by this is that the queer movement didn't really challenge much they just said we want what you have which is monogamy the marriage trajectory and the ability to create a family with dependent children the queer movement actually really failed in creating a more understanding world outside of the acceptance of same-sex couples. And what we now have in modern society is the concept of homonormativity, which is basically the mirror image of heteronormativity. And when we look at the law, we can see all the restrictions placed on those outside of hetero or homonormativity. Our current laws are what dictates to us acceptable and unacceptable sexual behaviors. And it's not just sex work that's still criminalized. There are things like gay conversion therapy and there are certain places where that is not criminalized and in that type of therapy is acceptable in the eyes of the law. We also have a lack of recognition of, I guess in Australia, we have a lack of recognition of traditional cultural ceremonies that our First Nations people engage in. So marriage within First Nations and their own cultural traditions isn't recognized by Australian law. And when we do look at the law, as I said, it's really important that we not only look at what's restricted, but what is allowed and what fails to have consequences. And this brings me back to rape culture. And we know that the law upholds patriarchy and it is near impossible for abusers and attackers to be held accountable. And why is that? Because women have lost the authority of storytelling. So when it comes to evidence, a woman's story isn't substantial. For sexual assaults, for rape, for harassment, the system is just weighed in their favor. And as Gail Rubin said, sometimes it's not even about the law. It's about the culture and the cultural reaction to certain behaviours are often way more influential than what the law actually says. And right now, we live in the information age where accessing the internet is almost considered a human right. And I think it might be a good point here to talk about participating in online spaces. For sex workers and anyone who's sexually positive, especially non-cis white male bodies, the amount of civil participation that occurs in online spaces means that when we are excluded we are basically told by society you're not full citizens who get to participate in this part of society and that applies to other identities not just sex workers but people who enjoy you know sadomasochism they're seen as these deviants and and society doesn't want to allow us to participate because of these sexual practices and we have more of a concern with you know sex work and you know polyamory and 
and not conforming to your gender assigned at birth than actual rapists and actual sexual assault. And this is what I mean when I talk about we need a true sex positivity discourse to be happening. Coming back to the hierarchy though, consent is really interesting within this hierarchy. And as I said, Ruben was writing in the 80s and in the 80s there were still some places where homosexuality was illegal. So I'm going to replace homosexuality with sex work. There are plenty of places around the world where sex work is illegal. And when you look at this hierarchy, we have more of an issue with those at the bottom. So if you look at jurisdictions where sex work is not legal, we have more of an issue with sex workers than we do with actual consent. Because when you're at the bottom of that hierarchy, you don't get to consent to these activities. The hierarchy states that they're not consent worthy. Nobody should be participating in these activities. Therefore, consent is moot. Whereas we don't apply that same sort of way of thinking when it comes to the top of the hierarchy. The way that society perceives it is if you're participating in heterosexual sex, that is good. Consent doesn't need to be discussed. Boundaries don't need to be discussed. You're operating in a heterosexual monogamous sexual relationship and that is approved. So I think that we should talk about consent because, the, as I said, the identities of those at the bottom of the hierarchy, we're framed as deviants, criminals, and mentally ill and therefore not capable of consenting to such sexual acts. And not only are we perceived as not capable of consenting, but even if we have consented, some sexual acts have been so vilified to the point that society couldn't possibly understand why any sane, rational person would make a choice to participate in such acts. And we can see that play out, as I said, in jurisdictions where sex work is illegal and in some places around the world there is a harsher punishment for being a sex worker than actual rape. Again, this is why we need sex positivity. We need to challenge those cultural understandings that heteronormativity is the correct way to be in this world because the reality is the majority of us are not cis, white, male misogynists and the understanding of what is sex and sexuality is constantly evolving and changing and we need the discourse to be able to keep up with these ever-changing understandings and perspectives on something as universal as sex. I was going to finish today's episode with a little chat about swerfs, but I think this episode might be long enough as it is. I'll just quickly do a little recap because I know I'm watching the time tick and I have been talking for a long time. So basically with the idea of who was in charge of talking about sexuality, we have this concept of sexual authority. And for a long time, sexual authority was dominated by religion. We went through the enlightenment period. We came out of that we realized that there were other ways of understanding the world outside of religion. And that's when science and medicine swooped in and became the authority on sexuality. And then based on the scientific and medical understanding of sex, we get to the criminalization of certain sexual practices, which is the main paradigm in which we're operating still today. And I want to argue that we're only now given the authority or we're giving the authority to ourselves because we have the internet. 
And I think the world would look very different if we didn't have the internet because having the internet means that we get to share our own experiences. We get to talk about our own sexuality from our own perspectives and we're able to collaborate, we're able to share, we're able to find community and we're able to see that heteronormativity isn't the only way and it isn't the right way. There are multiple right ways of having sex and if our discussions around sex don't focus on consent, boundaries and pleasure, then we're just going to keep perpetuating that heteronormativity that already exists. (sighs) We made it. We made it through episode three. There are a few things that I didn't get a chance to sort of go through today, but obviously I will be holding on to those notes so I can pop them into episodes in the future. If you've made it this far, thanks for listening. I hope I didn't waffle on too much. I'm still deciding what the next episode is going to be, but I do want to step away from the theory and potentially share some stories so that I don't have to do all the research and put the pressure on myself and then suffer imposter syndrome again. Thank you all so much for listening and thank you all so much for your support. If you've got some ideas of what you'd like me to talk about, send them through. Love you all.